welcome to Thinkorswim Live on the Stunt Show. Coming to you live for a change from the headquarters, worldwide headquarters of the Nachum Siegel Network, lower east side of Manhattan. It's been quite a pleasure to be here today. Spent some time with Nachum and uh, the gang here. And for the first time, I get to meet producer Avrami. Say hi, Avrami. Hi, Avrami. And there he is, right next to me, for the first time in history of the Thinkorswim Live of the Stunt Show. Well, I can finally see you. You often see me. I have never seen you in person before, so... This is true. It's an unknown It's an unknown little secret that we have, that I don't have the video. The video feed of me is not live, but I get to see you, and it's kind of interesting, because you don't think about me seeing you as much as you would if you would see me. Right. Well, it's, sometimes it's a little bit... It's a little bit weird for me that, you know, but it's, you know, you got to adapt. You got to go with uh, go with what's happening. See, I still I probably look as good in person as I do on the screen, so. You do. Skype has a good feed and you get you, you look nice and sharp. Oh, thank you. On the screen, nice and sharp in person as well. So, we're going to welcome everyone to the stunt show Thinkorswim Live on the Nachum Siegel network. You can listen to the show on nachumsegel.com and on the NSN app, and the stunt show is heard every Thursday 1 Eastern and 10 Pacific this week. It's at 1 Eastern for me. Usually it's at 10 Pacific for me. And we have a, a cast of a rotating hosts to keep you very entertained. My name is Eliyahu Fink. And um, aside from hosting this radio show once in a while, I used to be the rabbi of the show on the beach. And my last show, which you can listen to archived on NachumSiegel.com, has, um, has uh, my, my story of reminiscing and the memories of leaving uh, the show on the beach in Venice. And and it was quite quite a great experience for me to... To be able to talk to that, uh, to, to talk about that to all of you out there listening, um, we try to talk on this show about major communal issues, things that are happening in Judaism, in the world, Orthodox Judaism, issues that arise um, that need to be addressed, and perhaps at least start a conversation. And even if you don't agree with what I have to say, maybe you'll agree with one of our guests, or maybe you'll be able to think about something that you wouldn't have thought of if not for the fact that we had this conversation. So, once again. We are confronted with, with some very interesting in, information that requires our attention. Um, in particular, recently, the Pew Forum, which does studies and they do research about a variety of topics, not just this topic, but many topics, they published a survey and its results that interviewed thousands and thousands of people. This is not a small survey. This is more than 35,000 Americans. And the Pew Research Center um, spoke to adults and asked them to describe their feelings and their beliefs and their ideas about religion. And besides for culling and creating this entire set of data for today, that we now know what we believe today as a nation, the data also gives us an opportunity to compare what we have today with what we had, say, seven years ago, the last time we did a study like this. So while it's interesting on its own to see what we think today, what is perhaps more interesting to many people is to see how different what we have today is from what we had just seven years ago. And as you may have guessed or predicted, even if you hadn't seen the study, by the way, you should see the study, the results are in, and religion is in decline in America. Now, it's not news. Religion has been in decline around the world, and religion has been in decline in America for quite some time. But the great divide between what we saw seven years ago and now is getting more and more pronounced. The idea that there are more people that are 
transitioning from believer to non-believer or from religious to non-religious or from um, or from a religion to a different religion is steadily increasing. And this has caused a lot of people a lot of concern. And we're going to try to address some of the things that are raised by the questions that this study has presented to us. But first, we'll just talk a little bit about some of this data. Okay, so this data is, of course, not scientific in the sense that it's fact. It is fact that the people that answer these questions did answer the questions in this way and did give the Pew Research enough data to come up with their conclusions. But their conclusions are not conclusive. What, what I mean by that is it's possible that there is going to be a deviation from what is known by their results to what is actually true. But the, 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 matter, the, the fact of the matter is that no matter what deviation you come up with, the same deviation applies to the previous study. And that means that you can compare the numbers from before to now. So we'll start with the good news first. When it comes to Judaism, Judaism is one of the few religions that is growing. But Judaism that's growing is not something that I think is comparable to other religions. Because when, when we say Judaism, we're referring to religious Judaism. But on the other hand, there are many people who affiliate socially and culturally with Judaism. So when you talk about Judaism growing, I'm a little skeptical that it's religious Judaism that's growing. It's possible that it's just Judaism as a nation that's growing, which is important. And we love that. It's something that's very dear to us, to have a nation of Jewish people that are passionate about their Judaism, even if they're not religious. I'm very in favor of that as, as a way of identifying as a Jew. But for the purposes of comparing the numbers to other religions, I think that it's a little bit unfair to just go from Jewish to Christian, because Jewish is something that is um, it's subject to more than one definition, as far as religious goes. But Christian, one cannot technically be a Christian if they do not believe, whereas one can be a Jew even if they do not believe. So it's hard for me to believe um, that these numbers are perfectly comparable. But if we accept that the numbers are comparable, um, we would say that there is an increase in the people that identify as Jewish people in the United States. And that, I think, is at least the good news for us. But if you recall the Pew study from last year where we talked about, um, well, the whole country, everyone in the world was talking about some of the results of the Jewish Pew, Pew report, um, it was clear that there are some groups that are growing more than others and some groups that are certainly shrinking. And that's a separate cause for concern. It's a very local concern that, that that speaks directly to Judaism and Orthodox Judaism and non-Orthodox Judaism. But we're going to try and speak a little more globally today about America and about religion in America and the rest of the world. So what was discovered by this study is that Christians in general have decreased in number by 7.8%. That's a lot. 7.8% means that in 2007, almost 80% of people consider themselves Christian in America. And that's a lot, right? I mean, we know we live in a Christian country, but even the, the Christians themselves, they divide themselves up amongst, among many groups. So we'll get to that in a moment. But even just in a global sense, the amount of people that in this country are Christian used to be almost 80%, and that's only seven years ago. Now it's hovering around 70%. Now it was 78.4, that now decreased to 70.6, but the change is about 8%, and that's a huge number. This is a huge cause for concern for a lot of the people that feel very passionately about Christianity. They want, They believe it's true. And they believe that people should be Christian, and yet it's not working, right? There are so many people that are defecting and leaving. But then you can go and then drill down and see which of the different denominations of, of Christianity are growing, which ones are shrinking, and which ones are shrinking by more, and which ones are shrinking by less. And the, the news 
from this part of the study is that overall Protestant Protestant Christians, which are for the, the Jewish audience that may not be so familiar, a Protestant is basically in America a non-Catholic Christian. That's like the the the, the general way of describing. It. Of course, there are many other subgroups of Christianity that are not Catholic or Protestant. But in general, if they're not um, Protestant in America, the assumption can be that they probably are close to Catholic. And of the Protestants, they're about 5% less than before. And within the Protestants, the one group that has the smallest decrease is the two groups, or two groups. One is the historically built black Protestants, and they have a steady number. It's not perfectly steady, but it's close. And evangelicals are about about 1% decreased. But when you get to like the mainline Protestants, which is everybody else in the Protestant world, uh, in America at least, you know, it's not, it's a 3.5%. The numbers are, are pretty big. And, you know, you add it up and it starts to become pretty significant. So what happens when, when these kinds of studies are published is you have a variety of reactions. So first you have the uh, the explainers, right? You have the, the websites and the talking heads and the pundits that explain what this all means. What does the data mean? And, and that's what we've been doing until now. The data means that fewer people are religious um, and that fewer people are identifying with their religions than were before. But the question is, how did this happen? What changed? Where is this change happening? Is it just people that, like the same person in 2007 that said they were religious in 2014 is saying they're not religious. What is changing between the two um, study groups? Why, why, why are we feeling? Uh, why are we feeling a difference in how the reactions are? Uh, it's mostly the same people, right? Not not that many people died and were born that are between the brackets of, of, of 18 to I think it's 60 or something that are uh, are being interviewed for the first time. What's changed? How is it different? So the answer to that question is very simple, actually. The answer to that question is the people that are unaffiliated, that are not considering themselves religious, are very young. These are the people of the next generation. These are the people that were not old enough to be interviewed seven years ago. So you're talking about people that are between the ages now of 18 and 25. 18 and 25 is like right in the sweet spot of the Millennial generation. Personally, um, I, 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 I am very closely aligned with many of the millennial stereotypes. I was born after 1980, so that's a start. But a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the things that make a person a, a stereotypical or classic millennial are things that I identify with. So I feel very strongly about trying to explain and understand this generation. And because this is a passion of mine and I've been working with this group in my own religious um, my religious professional life and also in my own personal life, I think it's important to try and learn about uh, this group of people, what we, what we can learn from this study, but also what we can learn about the mistakes we've made or perhaps the successes we've had with the group of millennials when it comes to passing on tradition and religion. Um, I think it was... About a year ago, maybe a little less, I wrote a little review of a book that actually did a longitudinal study, basically five generations covering 120 years of a bunch of families from different religions. And it was not the kind of study that was trying to call data, the kind of data that's very, um, very uh, built on huge number of statistics and the kinds of data that you can rely on as being very um, um, 
very representative of what most people would believe. But what you can draw from the book is what works for individual people. It's stories. It's individual things. It's not things that are all-encompassing that apply to everyone. It's just what worked or didn't work for these individual groups. And then there are some conclusions that can be drawn. And it's a great book. Um, I suggest reading it. I suggest buying it. But even if you don't, you can read the review. And the review is worth your time. And it's on my blog, thinkorswim.com. And um, the name of the book escapes me at the moment. I will pull it up for you before the end of the show, God willing. So the idea is that there are things that we can learn about what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong from the things that we've done in the past and the results that we're seeing today. So if you see that people that are between the ages of 18 and 25 are affiliating less with their religions, then you can assume that either the things that we're doing are working and they're keeping in the people that are there and the rest of them would have left if, um, if, if we hadn't done such great things. Or you can be a little more cynical and say that perhaps the things we're doing to try to keep people in are not working because we're not even keeping as many as we were before. And if we wanted to keep more, we should try and reevaluate and assess what our plans and what our methodologies are and what the things that we do today um, resonate with people or whether they don't. So to that end, I'm going to um, welcome a couple of guests to our show in a little while. I'm going to set it up for a little bit before they join us, but I want to give you a sense of where we're headed. Our two guests are both religious people, um, but from different faiths. So we have a rabbi that's joining us, and this rabbi is somebody who has a, a huge congregation, hundreds of families, and he came from a previous congregation that was also a huge congregation, and has worked with and dealt with families that are from this generation, either people that have children of this generation or the children of that generation who are now growing up. So he has a lot of hands-on experience, but most importantly, he wrote an article, or really it was an analysis, an essay about, an article about an essay um, a little while ago that's exactly on point. And so we will have Rabbi Daniel Korupkin, uh, Rabbi of the Bayat Synagogue in Toronto, join us in a little while. And our other guest is a personal friend of mine who I've yet to meet in person, but we met through the Internet. And uh, this person, when I met him the first time, I remember met him. I mean, when I noticed him the first time, it was on uh, Twitter. And I tweeted something like, um, this guy is the Rabbi Slifkin or the Eliyahu Fink of his Christian community because he was trying to promote a version of his Judy, of his Christianity that resonated with me and it was kind of upstart. It was a little bit provocative and it was a little different than what his superiors and his mentors had been doing. But he feels that what he's doing is um, not just important and necessary, but it's actually in the, in the spirit of his tr- of the true religion that he practices. And um, that's not to say that he's a, he's a hugely controversial figure. It, it's not like that. But the idea is that the methodology that he invokes, which we'll try and talk about soon, is somewhat similar to what I think that is, is important. And since that time, we've become a little bit friendly, and uh, I've appeared on his podcast a couple of times um, talking about either Jewish issues or religious issues or biblical questions and things that are of common interest to both of our constituencies. And it's going to be really cool to have him join us because uh, he's literally grappling with the same issues with his Christian congregation. And so for that part of the show, we're going to have uh, Rabbi Kropkin joined as well by um, my friend J.R. Foresteros, and he will um, enlighten us a little bit with some of the things that they're doing and, and what he feels works and what he feels is not working. So to get to that point, we need to do a few things, okay? So we need to talk about what has been proposed in the media, what people are talking about today. Um, from religious groups. So the thing is, what you have is basically non-millennials. When I say non-millennials, I mean people that are in their 40s, their 50s, their 60s. They're professional theologians. They're people that are working with religious people. They're working with congregations. They're super qualified. Speaking about the issues that they see 
in people that are younger than them, that have a different experience than them, have, been, have different religious experience than them, and most importantly, a different social experience than them. So sometimes it's a little bit of a disconnect. Sometimes what they see and what they what they sense is not necessarily consistent with what the group is experiencing themselves. And because it's not consistent, it can either harm things worse or just become irrelevant, and then you lose the voice of that person when you're speaking to the younger generation because they seem like they are clueless. So, for example, um, you have some people saying that this is inevitable, that millennials are leaving tradition and religion because science is such an answer to all questions, and religion is not provable. And because it's something that is not tangible and cannot be proved, and maybe people say it can be disproved, maybe people say the Bible is not a book that they can rely upon for historical uh, authenticity because they see contradictions in what is uh, readily available through science and through, through our more hard sciences of history. Maybe they say that the Bible is clearly not true. Whatever the reason might be, this group of people is in analyzing this and saying that what they see is a rejection of religion that's conscious. And the reason that they're rejecting it is because it's not consistent. It does not reconcile with the things we know about the world, the world we live in today and science and all kinds of modern problems. To this group of people, I say that this is just laziness because the truth is that Judaism and any religion can be reconciled with science as long as you do it the right way. And the reason it's not being done the right way is because it's been set up that way. It's been set up that one has to choose between the two. And when choosing between the two, you're asking a question that the answer is either going to be, I have faith against what the evidence says, or I view the evidence as compelling and therefore the faith is useless. That's how it's been set up. That's a false choice. That's not the way it's supposed to be. When somebody asks me you know, to choose between religion and science, I say, that's like asking me to choose between gravity the movie and gravity the concept. Because gravity the concept is science, and you don't have to choose between that and gravity the movie, which is art. They're two different things. They speak to two different parts of a person. They have two different roles in our world, and they don't contradict. And because they don't contradict, I don't even see the question. I understand why people ask the question. I think it's a mistake to ask the question. But when we were talking about science, we're talking about things that exist in the physical world that can be seen, that can be touched, that can be proved, that can be demonstrated in the lab, that have that kind of relationship with us. It's something that we know because we can see, we can taste, we can touch. Religion is not supposed to be that. It never was. It only became that because people didn't have real science. The science that used to exist was a science that's more like theoretical artistic science, which means like we don't really have a way of testing stuff. It's very theoretical. It's like philosophy. Philosophy is not really a science, but people didn't have real science. So what they called science was really philosophy. It was suggestions about what the world and how it works. And because it was merely suggestions and ideas about how the world works, and it was not based upon evidence and based upon demonstrating things in a laboratory, it's not real science. So that actually can be in conflict with religion, because those are both trying to color our world, give us an idea of what the world is like and how we interact with our world and how we can live and breathe in this world. That's a conflict with religion, because one of them has a philosophy that says that it's based on something. Another one says it's based on a philosophy of revelation that God said something, and they can't necessarily reconcile. It's a much harder bridge to, to, to cross when you're dealing with two theologies, the philosophies that are different than they, and, they, and they disagree with each other. Now, some people don't reconcile. Famously, Maimonides reconciled this Aristotelian philosophy, which was the, the thing that they called science, but really it's philosophy, with Judaism. And he does so beautifully, but he did it. And other people said, no, they can't be reconciled, and therefore one is right and one is wrong. That's kind of the way that things have gone. 
But my view is that what we have today as science is so different from what they had then as science that they're not any more um, irreconcilable. That science is the study of what our world is and how it works. And religion and theology is the study of the soul. And whether you believe that there is a physical soul or a non-physical soul, there is a part of us. There is a part of the world that is the thing that we appeal to when we speak about art, when we speak about beauty. Now, some people may say that science is beautiful, and maybe it is in many ways. There are There is beauty, beauty to science. But we're talking about beauty. We're talking about the things that we see in a painting or in great music or in love or in the parts of life that are not easily definable and broken down into actual facts, figures, data. So a good example of this was demonstrated beautifully in a great movie called Interstellar, which, by the way, I suggest seeing. In Interstellar, there is a lot of science. Now, it's not real science. It's fake science. It's the science of that movie. It's kind of a science fiction kind of science. But there's a beautiful contrast between the way that these people treat science, which is as gospel, and it's that this is the word of the world and you cannot contradict it, with how they treat love. And they start to realize that they're not really operating in the same plane. This is one of the beautiful lessons of this movie, that love and beauty do not reside in the same location and they're not overlapping with science. There may be things about science that can explain love, and love may have us uh, uh, interested in science, but they operate in two different planes. So that's part one. I think that setting science up as a, as a, as a dispute with religion is a mistake. I think that the reconciliation is not as hard as people think. And because we've messed that up, I think that's the first wrong way of handling this. So I would say that that's part one of how it's been dealt with and how I think we're, we're, we're missing the boat a little bit. The second reaction people have, or another reaction that I've seen, is that people say, well, this is because religion's been diluted. You know, you can blame liberals, you can blame leftists, you can blame the Democrats, you can blame people that they have um, imposed a humanism, superimposed the humanism on American life. And because humanism sometimes seems more appealing and less um, difficult to 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 keep, right? You, people that are humanist, it's presented by opponents of humanism as something that is uh, feel good and everything is simple and you just do what you want. So that kind of religion of humanism is going to appear to be more attractive, perhaps, these people argue, because it doesn't have the kinds of um, the kinds of restrictions and obligations that religion has. So what they say happened is that religious groups then said, well, we can't have obligations. We can't have all these kinds of uh, challenges to religion. So let's just avoid those issues. We're not going to talk about them. And because they're not talked about, they may fill the pews because now you have people that are coming to the services because they're not being offended, but they're not being infused with any religion because religion is the stuff that we don't want to think about. Religion is the hard stuff. The easy stuff, that's not religion. The easy stuff that comes and goes, the hard stuff, that's where religion lives. And so these people say that the reason that millennials are rejecting religion is because they're not being given the true religion. They're being given a watered-down liberal version of religion, so we need to return to fundamentalism. That is the second group of people. To these people, I say that this is also an incorrect um, assessment. The reason it's incorrect is for a couple of reasons. First of all, every liberalization that we've had in society over the last few hundred years has resulted with a, a subsequent rejection of the liberalism and a return to fundamentalism. So let's say, for example, following the Renaissance era, um, Darwinism. So you have evolutionists. You have people that are now saying you don't need God. And then there was a group of people that rejected all that and said that, you know, uh, Darwin was a Satanist and 
these people became the religious fundamentalists of their time, and they actually do not last. The people that we have today that are, are, are the non-evolutionists are not people that were part of that group ever. Those people did not survive. But there was a very clear rejection of that liberalism, and now they have brought um, – they, 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 in return, they came to a very conservative fundamentalist place, and, but, but, but it didn't work. It didn't last. So, A, fundamentalism doesn't work. But there's another example of the same thing that happened. So, similarly um, – in the 70s, you had hippies rejecting all conformity, especially with religious groups. And the reaction to that in the 80s was evangelical Christianity, which was a very fundamental version of, of Christianity that has rejected a lot of what science has to say. And yes, it's been successful, but those are the exact people that we're talking about now that are being less successful. So in other words, the fundamentalism could work for a short period of time historically, but it doesn't last. But more importantly, it will not work today. Fundamentalism requires ignorance. There's no such thing as a fundamentalism that can that can work in a place of information and a place of access to data. A fundamentalist really needs the person that he's fundamentalistically proselytizing to believe everything he says to such a degree that everything is 100% true and that there is no ambiguity, there is no doubt, there is no question. Everything is stated exactly the way it was um it was meant to be said by this particular religious authority. And because those people expect that kind of conformity, it won't work with millennials because the one thing that we have is access to information and we have the ability to dilute it, to, to sorry, to diffuse it and to understand um, many different points of view. Since I've been a kid, since I've been in school, seven, eight years old, I did not have to take a single thing that a teacher said for granted. I could challenge anything they said because I could look it up on the internet. And that's a different thing than previous generations. In the 80s, if a fundamentalist pastor or priest or rabbi or anyone told you something that you had to believe them, you would have no real option. You could ask an outsider, but the outsider is not initiated, so they wouldn't know. So the opportunity for fundamentalism was much riper, and it was something that could work then. Well, it would require for a person to be fundamentalist today is what we have in Orthodox Judaism. You would have to become insular and not expose yourself to the outside world, and millennials are not going to choose to do that. So the, the first problem with fundamentalism is that, A, it's not going to work on millennials. And then the second problem of it, for, well, you know, the first problem is that it's not really true. It's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The second problem is that millennials won't accept it. But the third problem, and this is where it gets to a much more complex issue, is that millennials in general do not buy into take-it-or-leave-it, all-or-nothing propositions. Millennials will enjoy something, experience something, and then take a piece of it, take a part of it, and they will try to learn from as many places as possible. So you're not going to be able to get people that are acting that way towards all the things that they do in their lives to buy into a religion because that goes against the way they think in, in general. And that's not going to change. That's actually not because of religion or because of God or because of science. It's because the accessibility of data information has become so prominent in our lives that we can now use that data to learn about things and to, um, and to analyze the things that we're being told. It also gives us the opportunity, and I'm speaking about technology now, to meet people that we never would have met before. So the opportunity uh, the Internet presented to me was um, a chance to get to know a guy named J.R. Forresteros. And uh, I mentioned earlier that J.R. and I had, had met um, via the Internet, but we had worked together on some podcasts and some articles about common interests. So I'll tell you a little bit about JR and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll welcome him to the show. J JR is a pastor at what's called a Catalyst Community Church in Dallas. 
I'm not sure what that means. We'll have to ask him. Uh, and JR, JR writes that he is not native to Texas, but he and his wife Amanda are adjusting quite nicely to the warm weather, the stellar cuisine, and warm southern hospitality. Texas forever, JR. Um, but JR gets most excited about faith and pop culture, or as he likes to say, God and Batman. He blogs and hosts several podcasts at a website called Norville Rogers. That's N-O-R-V-I-L-L Rogers.com. And I recommend checking it out because he got some really interesting stuff on pop culture, but also its connections to religion. And we've had some great talks and conversations on, online, on the air, and um, on the phone about some of the similar questions that we have, uh, we have talked about, uh, that we have challenges that we are trying to address, um, especially through the mediums of uh, popular culture and the like. So first, we're going to welcome JR to the show. How are you doing, JR? Good to have you here. Thanks, Eli. Uh, thanks for having me. It's good, good to be here. You know, JR, it's, uh, I'm returning the favor. I, I, I really appreciated you inviting me to talk on the podcast that we've done, and it gave me an opportunity to expose myself to a world that I did not really know much about, and also to an audience that I would have no access otherwise. And a lot of them have interacted with me over the year, over the couple of years that we've been doing it, and I appreciate that. So I said, you know what? I want to return the favor. Plus, having you on the show is going to be great because we are actually going to be talking about the similarities and the differences between some of the things that are being done in the church and also in Judaism. So welcome. I'm really happy to have you, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I, I love getting to chat with you about all this religion stuff. It's it's fascinating. All right. Well, then we're in a good profession, both of us, huh? So now we're going to bring in <laughs> we're going to bring in um, our other, our second guest. Uh, our second guest um, is somebody that I, I respect uh, a lot as a, as a rabbinic um, mentor, but we don't have a personal relationship as a mentor. But from afar, I've I've watched and seen and read, read many of the things that this person has done. So so I would now like to welcome Rabbi Daniel Korubkin who is the Marida Asra, which is the uh, Hebrew, the fancy way of saying the senior rabbi at the Beth Avraham Yosef of Toronto Congregation, commonly known as the Bayit. Uh, rabbi Korobkin received rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Ruderman, Zechot Sadek Livracha of Nari Yisrael Rabbinic College, and he has served in several pulpits, uh, San Diego, Los Angeles, Allentown, Pennsylvania, and now Toronto. Uh, rabbi Korobkin also holds a Master's of Science degree from Johns Hopkins University and a Master's of Arts degree in Medieval Jewish and Islamic Thought from UCLA. And he is uh, the known translator and annotator of the Feldheim edition of the very important work of Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, the Kuzari, which has now just been republished in a new edition. And it's a great honor and a privilege to welcome Rabbi Korobkin uh, to join the conversation for a few minutes and talk about what we're learning and what we are changing, what we are thinking about when it comes to uh, religious continuity in America. Welcome, Rabbi Korobkin. Thank you, Rabbi Fink. It's wonderful to be able to reconnect with you. Um, I look forward to even sitting down and having coffee with you one day, but this, this will have to do for now. We will definitely have coffee, but you know what we're not going to be able to do is hear you. You have to hear you speak really loudly into your phone or whatever because it's just not coming through super loud. So if you okay. if you can pretend okay. you're on the pulpit, yeah, that's perfect. Pretend you're on the pulpit and the kids are making a lot of noise. <laughs> okay, you got it. <laughs> And hi, JR. Nice to meet you. Uh, likewise, Rabbi. So I'm going to try and uh, facilitate a little bit of this conversation. I know you both have a lot to say about these subjects. And I want to start really with an article that began this conversation that Rabbi Korobkin and I actually had seen this article as well um, about what what the experience of millennials themselves are. You know what was very annoying to me is a lot of times you have people that speak about stuff um, and they don't really have firsthand information. They don't really know the people that they're speaking about, or they just assume that what they see is translated into the conclusions that they make. That's kind of a common problem. 
And especially when it comes to stuff like this, you know, the, the, the question of why people leave Orthodox Judaism. Well, not a lot of people have done a lot of interesting studies or, or actually talked to people and found out why they leave, but they make, certainly they make assumptions and they make a lot of guesses. Uh, we don't, maybe they're right, maybe they're not right. You have to actually ask these people. So this is an article that was written by a millennial who left the church. Um, this is a young woman who is really just a year and a half, two years younger than me. And she left the church because... It was hurtful to her. She didn't like it. And then when she came back, she didn't come back, as she writes, because of the great programs or because they were doing such a good job at the church. She came back because there were things that the church provided for her that she missed, despite the things that they were doing wrong. And she actually made a list of five cliches that people that go to church that are millennials hate to hear. And these are kinds of things that I feel like these are the kinds of things that the, the churches and the rabbis that are like in charge are like, this is what's going to get millennials. We're going to speak this way or this is the way to speak today. And almost all the things that they, that she mentions are things that I almost feel like they were made by like a group of people in some boiler room somewhere. Like, this is how we're going to do it. And the funny thing is that it's the, the, the things that you, that you see in this article, um, are exactly correlated to many things that happen in Judaism. And Rabbi Korobkin wrote a little bit of a analysis of this essay trying to show how these different things are the similar or different from what we have in Judaism, but also to discourage these things, um, because they're not actually helping, they're turning people away. So I just wanted to ask JR first. Like, I, mean, I know you've seen this article, and I wanted to ask you just to maybe talk a little bit about, from the from the perspective of you and the people you've talked to, what do you feel like are the things the church tries to do to attract millennials? And I, I don't want to hear, like, what's successful or not successful yet. I just want to hear, like, what are, they, what are the things that they're doing? Like, are, are they trying? And if, you, if they are trying, what are the things they're doing to try? Yeah, it is actually surprising to me continually still how, how many churches actually aren't trying still. They sort of just complain that young people don't like God anymore. Uh, so, so that there, there's a there's a large number of churches that yeah they just aren't. They they're continuing to do what they've always done, what worked for the boomers and for the silent generation, and and you know it's kind of doing that. The ones who are trying a lot of it is, uh, for lack of a better a better term, it's sort of like marketing esque. It's uh, how they dress, trying to dress cool, trying to play rock music trying to uh do even even if you look at some of the newer church buildings that have been built in the last 30 years they don't look like more traditional church buildings with a steeple and all that they look more like office complexes or you know just some kind of auditorium type thing uh and and all of that is in some ways to that there's an assumption that millennials don't like church so they try to be as unchurchy as possible, if that makes sense. Uh, so, you know, don't wear a suit and tie, wear jeans and T-shirts. Don't play traditional hymns, play contemporary or like, you know, stuff that sounds like what would be on the radio. Uh, don't use don't use old translations of, you know, English translations of the Bible, like the King James or something like that. Use a translation that sounds more contemporary. In fact, some of the some some pastors even go so far as to uh, really downplay the presence of scripture in the teaching in the sermon time and and almost almost make it more like a motivational talk uh, with just a little bit of scripture sort of towards the end, uh, all geared towards basically trying to make things less church-like for people who apparently I think the I think the uh, the logic is well they don't like church so let's do church without all the churchy stuff in it and see if they like that. You know right. what I mean? Right. I, I get exactly what you're saying. You know, you're you're saying that 
these people are like, well, they don't love Christianity so much. These kids are going to be offended by it. So let's kind of avoid that. And we'll just make this a social group and maybe we'll have some religious part of it that we'll sprinkle in that's not too offensive. Yeah, and uh, to, to be as generous as possible to people who take that approach, the, they're not trying to gut God out of the religion altogether. They're trying to create maybe more of like a front door experience so that once people have connected to the congregation, uh, then there are some like later steps for them to take where they would actually learn some Bible and learn some theology and learn about Jesus and all of that. But they're trying to make that like initial guest experience uh, very non-threatening. Right. So I I... I... I think that that what you're saying uh, resonates with, with with a lot of parts of Judaism, but not as much as some of the other things that I, I noticed in this article. So let's maybe focus for a moment on some of the things that that she wrote about, because I think these are like much more hyper specific. You're talking about kind of general approaches, but like things that bother people um, that are maybe things that were said in order to make people feel better. Like one sure, of the ex- okay. right. So one of the examples in there is like mm-hmm. that you know. Uh, God will never give you more than you handle. You can handle. So they'll tell you this idea in order that you should, um, you should, you should feel like you can do anything. But you know, it's it sounds empowering. But on the other hand, if if you're really st- struggling with something, it's not empowering at all. It just feels like you're you're doing some you're doing something that that feels like it's wrong or like your faith is too or faith is too small. Or the other example was like the Bible clearly says or that there's faith that is obvious. In other words, making it so black and white, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. It sometimes it, 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 cliches are have a way of being not nuanced and, and and make things super simple, and that simplicity is sometimes made to dumb things down. But on the other hand, it can actually make things more offensive. Do you, does that resonate with you? Oh yeah, and I think I think there's something about somehow, particularly in evangelical churches, which the church that I pastor is evangelical, uh, particularly in those congregations, there's this concern that the worship experience be like nice and neat and not messy. And so a lot of times, though any individual pastor or church leader would say, man, we really hope that if someone's struggling with something, they'd be really honest about it. You know, uh, they would say that in practice, no one feels as though they're allowed to be a mess when they come to worship. Mm. Does that make sense? Right. So what you're saying is that it feels like they're they're saying, you can ask anything, talk to us about anything, but it feels like they're saying that just to say it, but the people that they're saying it right. to don't really believe it. Right. And when, when someone comes with an honest question, they're not, they're not, that question isn't respected. They're, they're, they're either told that's a silly question or just, just have faith, don't ask questions. Uh, and so it, it, it's made clear in practice that there isn't room for questions there isn't room for people who are struggling. You know, God, God won't give you more than you can handle. Instead of being, like you said, instead of being encouraging, it sounds like if you can't handle something, then you probably shouldn't be here because that means you have some sort of faith deficiency or something like that. Right. So I want to transition out to Rabbi Kropkin because I want to ask if, if this sounds familiar to you. Well, yes, of course it does. But I think we need to back up for a second. Instead of identifying what the weaknesses of our churches or synagogues or or seminaries are, we have to sort of identify what happened to our society while we were asleep at the wheel. <laughs> uh, what happened to our youth? What happened to the kids? You know, the Kiruv movement, you know, the out- Jewish outreach movement was a powerhouse, um, you know, uh, Rabbi, I think when you and I were much younger in the 70s and the 80s and even into the 90s, where it, at least it seemed that way to me, that there were so many more people who were flocking towards traditional Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, 
because they felt that there was something missing and they were searching and they were on a quest, they were on a journey and orthodoxy was providing these amazing answers and solutions and sense of purpose. And society today, um, you know, it's very hard to have a meaningful conversation with a person who's a millennial because they'll say, you know, after you get one sentence done, they'll say, excuse me, I've got to check my text. I just got something. Oh, there's a beautiful, <laughs> look at that cute frowning cat. Let me just take a moment and disengage from the sense of purpose and meaning that my life should be all about and just laugh at that cute um, little cat on my screen. So well, I'm sorry, I was distracted. I was just looking at a cat video. What did you say? <laughs> right. I mean, so that's really, that's really the issue is that the world changed around us and we were doing business as usual, and things were working just fine until the world changed. The technological changes, the new media, and this sense of people just in, in general don't have the attention span, the patience to really want to delve into the bigger questions of what's the purpose of life and what's the meaning. And so I'm not sure whether, you know, if we try to pick apart all the things that our churches and our synagogues are doing wrong, I don't think that ultimately, yeah, we can certainly tweak certain things that we might want to improve, but we have to try and sort of analyze what the larger picture is and how we can address it more, a little bit more directly in trying to engage our millennials, our youth, in the places where they are. It might require us to completely leave the synagogue and the church entirely and try to attach ourselves maybe to people as they get a little bit older. You know, there's a new model in orthodoxy. This woman, Lori Palatnik, is trying it, and she's seeing a lot of success. She's discovered that, you know, the old model of outreach, of Jewish outreach, of Kiruv, used to be on the college campus. And you can't engage these people anymore. They're too busy. They're too distracted. So she's now gone after housewives. And she's looking at, you know, uh, the typical soccer mom who, um, you know, has had a couple of kids and is sort of facing a point in her life where she says, you know what? I've done that, I've done this, I've been there, I've been that. What's it all about? And sometimes, you know, the questions that we would have expected younger people that are in their 20s to ask, they may not be asking those questions until they're in their 30s and in their 40s. The bottom line is, is that we have to change the business model of religion if we're going to be able to get back on our feet. Right, and it's interesting, though, because, you know, you're saying that she's moved her, her, her target market, right, to, like, the moms, and the kids are a little older, I would actually say that what she's really doing is moving out of the millennials. She's saying, like, I'm not going to bother with those people. I'm waiting till they get older. And those people that are older are people that are not from that generation. So it's almost like avoiding the issue. And it's it's better to do something that's going to be effective than do something that's not effective. But I am less cynical about you, uh, Rabbi Karofkin, and I think JR would agree with me because we are a little younger, that I'm less cynical about the about the millennials and the potential for reaching out to them. I actually do believe that there is a lot of utility in going back and looking at what we might have not done and seeing if there's a different way that maybe will resonate more strongly. So, And I'm sure in your career you've seen some things that have worked better than others when it comes to um, when it comes to reaching people that were born in the, in the era of technology. And I don't mean to be like flippant and say that those people are, are, are going to listen to some things and not other things because, you know, somebody figured out what they like to hear. I mean that, you know, there, there may be some patterns that, that, that we can identify about what is the interesting thing to them about religion. Because you mentioned right. that the interesting thing to them about, to, about religion to the Orthodox, the Pentecostal Orthodox Jew in the 70s and 80s, early 90s, was meaning. And 
I think that that's kind of the key here, that people are using that old model and trying to use that today. And I have a different interpretation of the, 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 the effectiveness or the lack of effectiveness today. I think that it's not as much because of lack of attention. I think it's more because the kids today are, are growing up in a world where meaning exists. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's a recent poll, I read this in the New York Times, that for the first time in history that we've recorded, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, millennials are the first generation of people that are taking less money to work for a job that has a better social purpose to it. So the meaning, I think, has kind of become part of society a little bit. You know, in the 70s, it was either you're a stodgy old person that, like, does things the old way or you're a rejectionist hippie that does things the new way and that's all the stuff's wrong. <laughs> and now it's kind of like there's this middle ground where people are rejecting many things but accepting others and they try to find meaning in their own lives. So I think we can do stuff with meaning. I just think the meaning has to be different. It can't be presented as your old meaning was worthless and your new meaning in Judaism will be valuable. It's more like there's meaning in this, what we're doing. And yes, you had meaning in your life before, but maybe it can be even better. Do you see what I mean by that? Yes, I do. And, and, and I, I, do, I do agree with you that part of the flaw of the old model is not only trying to tap into a core that may already be distracted, so yes, there is something that you can reach, but I think one of the flaws of the old model is of Kiruv per se, was that um, if you don't become Shomer Shabbos, if you don't become Sabbath observant, so then you're off my radar, you're off my list. And today it's mm-hmm. much more nuanced, and, and I think pr- part, part of me is so attracted to the Chabad movement, even though I'm not a Lubavitcher myself, is because the Rebbe had this tremendous wisdom to realize our project here is not to get everyone to become a from Orthodox Jew. Our project is to be able to get people to love God, to love the Jewish people, to become closer with each other, and to just do one more mitzvah, just do one more thing. And it, the end game is not that a person is going to be wearing a, you know, a black suit and a white shirt and a black hat and coming to shul and putting on tefillin every morning. The goal is to make sure that people feel a sense of closeness and a sense of connection to God. Right, so that makes so perfect sense, right. Because what we're saying is that this group of people is less likely to adopt things uh, as a whole, and they're more likely to, t- to, to find things that they appreciate and like from the things that are smaller pieces, and, and, they'll, and they'll build their own kind of thing, which is offensive to many religious people because they believe that you have to do everything, and then it hurts them to see that a person that's doing one thing that's religious, and then the next second they're not, what are people going to think? That you can do whatever you want, and it's disconcerting to them. Jared, does that happen a little bit in, in, what, you, in what you see? Oh, yeah, and in fact, uh, Rabbi Krupkin, one of, the, one of the things that you said really uh, – struck me. Uh, and actually, in the article, too, w- one of the points she brings, brings up is that, you know, religious people oftentimes try to make everything black or white. You know, you said you, you either, you know, keep Shabbos or you don't, right? And if you don't, like, you're out and whatever. And millennials really struggle with that. They really struggle with, uh, I don't know if I want to say we're commitment phobic. Maybe we are. I don't know. But... Uh, you don't want to commit to an answer, huh? I know, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, for, for us to say, to look at someone and say, you know, you're, you're in or you're out is, is much harder for us to get our brains around than to say, you know, everyone is on a journey, and what I am interested in is inviting someone to take the next step in that journey, right? If, if I can convince you to just take one more step closer to God, and that fits our, that fits our theology because we believe uh, that everything we do is a response to God. You know, God moves first, and we move in response, and, and I think too often in religion we see people getting caught up in trying to move first all the time and, and trying to make sure that everyone's crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's instead of saying, 
let's trust that God is working in this person's life and calling this person to them. And we get to, we get to bear witness to that and participate in that. Uh, but it's not our, it's not our story. It's not our show. Uh, we're, we're just some of, we're just some of the people who get to participate. Uh, and I think, I think what millennials want more than anything is, is transparency and authenticity. We want to be able to see that you're on this journey too, and that you don't have all the answers. Uh, and that I can be who I am, all of who I am, and, and you're going to meet me in that place and come with me. So, Rabbi, when you said, you know, we leave the synagogues or we leave the churches and we go out among the people, like, that's a model that I think is hard for a lot of religious people to do, but I, I think it's necessary if we're going to engage millennials. Really well said, J.R. And, uh, Rabbi, the, the, the thing that, that we were, we're, we're just touching up upon right now, and, you know, we're, we're, we're we could probably talk. The three of us could probably talk about this till next time I host this show in five weeks straight. <laughs> but we're, we're we have do have a limited time, fortunately, because we all have things that we have to do besides talk about this stuff and you know do this stuff. So, it, but it's coming right up on something that I think was the key to the article that you wrote. This this kind of analysis of this essay, um, and I have been talking about this you know constantly, and it, it, it's so frustrating when people that are older, for sure. Are so unaware of this of the power of this, but you know it come, from my angle it comes it comes up when people say, you know by 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 talking about doubts or issues or problems, you're causing people to be turned off. And my response has always been that I have never heard that from somebody directly that's actually been turned off by hearing about problems and issues and struggles, but I have heard that people that have been turned off by not talking about problems and struggles mm-hmm. and issues and sure. the and it's like pretty much you tell your kid always like it's it's never the crime it's the cover up i caught you now just own it and say you did something wrong and when they you know they they fight i didn't really do it that's where the that's where the real problem is the problem is like the lack of acknowledgement so i have found it's a lack of a, yeah. please sorry it's a lack it's a lack of acknowledgement which i think is partially an insecurity because we've we've been trained in the yeshiva you and i rabbi fink to believe that in order to be able to win the argument, you have to have conviction of, of being right without any hesitation whatsoever. And that's exactly the opposite kind of mindset that we need in order to be able to connect with people who have questions. We have to show them that we're just, they're no different from you and I. You know, I'm no different from a fellow who's questioning God because I go through my moments of doubting God also. And people need to see that we're human beings more than they need to know that we're theologically, uh, you know, concrete. You know, so that's, that's the reason why I think, you know, it's the, the, the ability for a rabbi especially to transition from the yeshiva world where certainty and certitude are necessary in order to be able to win the debate of, in the Gemara, to go outside of the yeshiva now and to be able to share one's conflicts and one's demons and one's questions and one's, you know, uh, un, unclear theology, that's a very difficult adjustment to make, and sometimes it can take a long time, but it's necessary if we want to connect to people. So I think that what you're saying there is really the key, and I think that people that are, are talking about you know, solutions you know, based on this Pew study and other, you know, this has been going on for a while already, trying to figure out how to reach this next generation, I think that that really is the key. I mean, sure, there are other aspects to it, but for me, if I were to encapsulate it, I would say that, as JR mentioned kind of briefly, that it's more about the journey than the destination. And maybe there are people that are destinationists. They, they just want to know where they are. They're not going to think about it anymore. 
But the, the classic millennial is not that way. The classic millennial has had 15 jobs by the time they're 30. And not because of a lack of commitment, because they're so interested in so many different things. And because there's all these different opportunities and because you can try so many different things that they don't have to know. And because they don't have to know on those things, you can't force them to have to know when it comes to religious questions. And more importantly, even the theology of Judaism itself is built upon lack of certainty. And it's a false That's idea right. that we've taught ourselves. We, we actually introduced this problem. Like the whole, the whole theology of, of the Garden of Eden for our Jewish story is like it, it used to be all clear and revealed and then it got dark. Or the whole idea of, of a, of a Torah Shabbat Peh, an oral law that's been given to interpret, to, to us for interpretation. That is something that is ours to argue about and discuss. And that's what we do in Yeshiva. But instead of taking that lesson out of it, we take out this lesson of certainty like you're mentioning. So I really do believe that the way forward is to, uh, to really emphasize this journey. The way forward is really to talk about how, um, we're here with you. We're in the struggle with you to find beauty in that struggle, to find beauty in the ambiguity and the doubt and to, emphasize that that is not a bug it is a feature so that in and that is such a huge difference from the kind of mentality that exists for the people that grew through religion in the 70s and the 80s when it was like those crazy people who are not religious are all wrong and we have the truth and when you when you say the words i have the truth it was the first things i learned in my shul a, a congregant named milt simon said to me that one of his teachers told him when a person says i have the truth what he's really saying is you must obey and we all know that does not work for people from uh, the generation of the 80s. It maybe didn't work ever, but it certainly doesn't work now. So we have just a minute or two left, and I wanted to just finish up here and um, get some closing thoughts. Look, I appreciate both of your thinking, and I really appreciate you both joining us and, t- and talking for a few minutes. Um, this is a taste of what, what, what these two amazing people have to offer for our audience, and I do highly recommend suggesting, suggest uh, checking out their websites, their books, all the things that they have to say about this and many other subjects. So just in conclusion uh, for now, there's no, there's no such thing as a conclusion for uh, for millennial, right, JR? But we do want to end off this show with a quick thought. So I wanted to just get from you how you feel it can be implemented. How do you feel that we can make uh, struggles and doubt into something that's acceptable for our uh, constituencies? When so many people say religion, the whole point of religion is to be is to be certain and to know. How do you How do I accept this idea that religion is also about insecurity and ambiguity and struggles? Uh, uh, there's two things. One, I think we can model it ourselves. The more honest we are about our own our own journey, the more it invites people to be a part of it. Uh, and I think, too, like when we go to the scriptures, uh, sit, spend extra time with texts like Job or Ecclesiastes or uh, even like, you know, the Jacob and the angel, right? I mean, like, spend spend time on the texts that are messy where people doubt and where they're not punished for the doubt, but they're they're rewarded for it and invited into, like, a, a deeper relationship with God and just in, use those texts to invite people into that journey. That's a great point, actually. There are so many texts that are beautiful and helpful to that journey that we should probably emphasize those. Right, Karapkin, some final thoughts on this as well? Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with uh, Jr. Look, you know, I just I, I try to speak about it as often as I can. Uh, one of the powerful sermons that I gave that, that people told me resonated with them is that, you know, we have this thing where uh, there was an article written in Commentary Magazine about a year ago about social orthodoxy, about Jews who just come to shul uh, not because they feel anything particularly religious, but because they just socially like to engage in a social circle and a kiddish and whatever it is. And I addressed it, and I said, you know what? Some people may think that I'm critical of you if you're a socially orthodox Jew, but I said, I love you, and I want you to continue coming. 
because just the fact that you've been able to have the guts to come into this place of God means that one day it may click for you. And even if it doesn't today, let's work together towards that journey. You know, we have a holiday called Sukkot. What, is the, what, is the, what are we commemorating when we celebrate Sukkot? That the Jews built huts while they were traveling through the desert. Why? Why do we have to celebrate a holiday that's all about journeying towards the promised land? Mm. It's because in Judaism, it, it is all about the journey. I mean, yeah. And you know are... what? We're, wherever we are, it's okay, just as long as we are conscious of who we are, where we are, and we try to connect with people. And, you know, it, it, you're just mentioning one of the many, many places that you can draw that lesson from. And it's true. The more, once, I've, once I went on this journey myself and I started to realize that this is something to talk about, the opportunities to talk about this are endless. And almost every single week I'm able to find something that speaks to this exact issue. I want to thank, really thank, uh, two people that I respect greatly, especially on this issue. Uh, thank you, JR. Thank you, Rabbi Karapian. It was really great to have you. Um, join us today, and I Thank really you. do. I really invite everybody to to explore all the things that you have to say uh, for JR. It's at NorvalRogers.com, and Robert Karapkin's a published author. You can search for him on Google. You'll find some many, many interesting things um, about many, many interesting topics. I mentioned a book at the beginning of the show. Um, it was called Faith. I'm sorry, it was called Families and Faith. I recommend getting that book if you want to see a little review of it. You can go to my website, thinkorswim.com, and just search for Families and Faith. Um, and this was um, a great opportunity to begin this conversation. Um, if you're interested in more about this, you can reach out to me, um, email rabbithink at gmail.com, facebook.com uh, slash aliyahofink, thinkorswim.com. It's easy to find me online. Uh, you, we can make a time to talk on the phone if you like. But this this is stuff that I've written about. It's stuff that I've been talking about for a while. And for me, this is the key. The key is to be able to acknowledge that not everything is as clear and as obvious as, it, as, as, we, as we maybe have to tell ourselves and pretend or to be as or to put on that kind of face, and that will actually help us, that the acknowledgement of struggles is is an acknowledgement that will be good for us as a religious community and not that that will harm us as a religious community. Find the beauty in the struggles, and if we do it together, if we find the beauty in the struggles together, it creates a community of people that are working towards this goal, and I think that that is really the answer, and that's not been explored yet, not been tried yet, and so I think that that is really the answer that we're going to have to live with moving forward and if we do so properly I believe that we will have a solution and next time this study comes out we'll do a little better than we did this time I'll see you next time everyone can you stand on your own with your feet on the floor are you big in your heart are you true at the core sometimes you get a feeling you're bottoming out and you're lost in the dark Alone, so appealing Walk in the shadows, hide from who you really are